we are doing exactly what jo- Jonah did here. I mean, let's face it. I mean, as Americans, we're, we're pretty, pretty contemptible when it comes to how everything has to go right. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, may your Word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May we appreciate the Scriptures as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rise in our hearts. Lord, we know just skimming and reading through the Bible is good, um, but study, contemplation, much prayer yields the kind of fruit that a quick read cannot provide. We ask that your Holy Spirit be with us as we contemplate some of the deeper things of your word. Not, as, not at a glance, although a single message is a glance, you know, but through struggling with and wrestling with what you are saying in your word. Give us eyes to see with, ears to hear with, and a heart to perceive, discern, and understand what you mean by what you have written so that we might elevate the Word of God to its rightful place of prominence before our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own prejudices, um, and give you the praise and the honor and the glory that belongs to you alone. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This episode is number 58. Titled Jonah 4, chapter 4, The Contrary Prophet. The Contrary Prophet. Humility exemplified. For some reason, many people want to believe the best about Solomon and the worst about the prophet Jonah. Why do you suppose that is? Do you know for yourself where you stand and why you believe it? Just today I heard a preacher say, Religious hypocrites are willing to admit that they sin sometimes, but they will never acknowledge that their religion is wicked. Think that's true? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You realize what he's saying there? I mean, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God is what the word teaches throughout. In Adam's race, we were all condemned if you believe in original sin, which the Bible teaches. And so when Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, there are no righteous. He is not looking to righteous men. He's looking at wicked men. Wicked men who watched him heal a nation for three years. And then they just wanted to cry out for his death. Why is that? He was the light of the world, and the light shined on men's sins. And they rejected the light. And they rejected him. 
You know, about Solomon, the scriptures are silent regarding his repentance. And I know people will run to his writing, you know, about himself and his autobiography, so to speak, and as if that's his, his word of repentance. I find no word of repentance in it. He tells a story of his idolatries that consumed his entire life, yet not a peep of personal sorrow and contrition. In the end, Solomon's reign led to the division of Israel, 700 wives to make peace left, to make peace, and, and as a result, left seven, as many idols to worship all about the land. For 700 years, Israel would worship false gods, and, and the riches from Solomon's kingdom would add nothing to the spiritual life of David's kingdom. Concerning another fine prophet of Israel, the Bible says, quote, Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Belloc, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Numbers 23, 18, and 19. Who's telling this tale? This accurate assessment of God Almighty? None other than the prophet Balaam, who Balak bought, and he would not prophesy against God. But in the end, his end, we read this in Joshua 13, 22, the sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with the sword among the rest of their dead, end quote. Balaam died the death of a false prophet, but yet his voice, his words, his prophecies were right spot on. Neither Solomon or Balaam are spoken of in the manner by which Jonah is denigrated. I mean, not even close. Either he makes Solomon and Balaam look good by comparison, that is Jonah, or something else is going on. Hold that thought. I've entitled Jonah for the contrary prophet because the main point of the passage is Jonah's contrary attitude towards God throughout the chapter. In fact, throughout the entire book, Jonah is witnessed as a man of God a prophet, even as a Hebrew, he fails miserably as one called to fulfill the will of God. In contrast to the conflicted, contrite, and captivating prophet Jonah, we are informed repeatedly of God overruling sinful men through the divine and sovereign will. I mean, that's what you read in the chapters. I mean, Jonah himself is conflicted, contrite, and captivating as he preaches his message finally. But he himself is overruled by the sovereignty of God, and in every part of his words and his life and his autobiography, I mean, he's just, he's worthless at best. God hurled a great wind in the sea and a great storm on the sea. God used the superstitions and even the conversions of the ship's crew and subsequently increasing the power of the storm, to turn Jonah about by casting him into the sea, having converted the crew and making them obedient to his will. 
Furthermore, God appointed a great fish to carry Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh. Lastly, God sends a wayward prophet, that's Jonah, to convert a people on the brink of annihilation. In chapter 2, in chapter 2, we see him totally contrite uh, to what we've just seen in chapter 1. I mean, he turns tail in chapter 1, and then when he's picked up by this big fish, he cries out to God for salvation. And calls God the God of salvation. It's a great prayer. I have a message on it. You can go and read it yourself. And it's a prayer of contrition by a man who sees himself miserably for what he is. In chapter 3, there's not much of anything said about Jonah at all. The fish spits him out, and he proclaims what God told him, and the remainder is the resulting relationship between the people of Nineveh and God. It's not about Jonah, really. The, The people repent, God gives them repentance, and the people are restored. He relents of what he said he was going to do. God's sovereignty is explicit and clear in the conversions and repentance of the people. Romans 8, 7 and 8 say this, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, anyone who sees Nineveh, they will see this city at the third stage of a nation's falling away, setting aside God and, bringing, and being brought to this place of destruction. God's ready to destroy it. I mean, he says it. And a nation goes from immorality to homosexuality to where they can't even discern what a man and a woman is, which is where our country is right now. And this Nineveh was right there. So they have to see them at the, the, the worst end of sin and hardening of a heart on the, on the very brink of destruction. And they're in the flesh, <laughs> definitely not believing men and women, in a, and they can't please God. So Hebrews 11.6 uh, says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I mean, I ask you, of all the sin that's gone on throughout the Old Testament, in Israel, let alone the, 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 the nation surrounding Gentile nations, and here's Nineveh at the brink of destruction, and they place faith in God. Does that seem like a work of man to you? If you're in this present time, in this this belief system that just has to proclaim that man of his own free will has to receive Jesus Christ. Not a gift of faith, but a a free will as a sovereign being untouched by the, the sin of Adam that destroys such a thing and puts him into bondage. If you're in that place, I would ask you to rethink that as we consider this story in the last chapter, chapter 4 of Jonah. Jonah 2.9 says, 
But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah recognizing, recognizes in, in the stomach of, the, of a fish that he is wicked and wretched and he deserves death and he seeks death, but God is not willing for him to die. That is not God's will. And he saves him out of the fish. And Jonah, in effect, humbles himself. And you know what? He, ad he admits that he needs to give God the sacrifice of his life. He's not completely broken yet. He appears broken. He's partly broken. Uh, but he's on his way. There are th three things necessary in order for salvation to take place. Number one, the blood of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, hanging on the cross, paying the price for those for whom he died. Number two, the Holy Spirit creating a new heart through the word of God. Second element, the Holy Spirit creating a new heart through the word of God. If you understand, you want to understand that fully, spend some time just meditating on Hebrews chapter 10. Look at what the new covenant looks like. The, the covenant that saves. Not the covenant that puts the law into man's hands and then they think that they can keep the law and, and actually, in effect, when they try to do that, it sends them to hell because it's there as a schoolmaster. It's there for blessing for those who can keep it, who are enabled by God to keep it. But other than those people, everyone else is sent to hell by trying to keep the law. So the first element in salvation is the blood of Christ. The second is the Holy Spirit creating a new heart through a new covenant, through the word of God. And number three, the gift of faith made possible by the creation of a new heart. The gift of faith made possible by the creation of a new heart. Only God can keep the covenant that saves people. Only God can implant in sinful, wicked, wretched men that we all are the gift of faith necessary to receive that gospel message. The gospel that teaches that God must wait for us or that God is dependent upon us to be saved is not the good news of God. It is not the news, it is not good news to us at all. There is no such thing. <laughs> there is no such gospel, not according to the New Testament. When God saves a person, that person is set free to choose God. Rebirth, to be born again, regeneration. All come before we choose. All come before. The new heart must come first. In the book of Jonah, his faults are on full display. Thereby, Jonah fulfills Jesus' command in Matthew 5.16, quote, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know what that means? That means that as we parade our lives before men, as we witness to Jesus Christ and Almighty God, to the work that Christ is doing in our lives, as we do that, we are called to do it in a manner in which gives the Father in heaven all the glory. How does that happen? Well, we do the good works as God does those works through us. We're the channel. 
by which God displays his good works. We do not display our good works. We display his good works. Now this is what Jonah is all about. As I get to the end, I hope this becomes perfectly clear. Some will say to me, well, what were Jonah's good works? Besides proclaiming God's word reluctantly as it was, he wrote a book. First, if a man were to write an account of what in Nineveh, what happened in Nineveh through Jonah, would he write it with the honesty of the book of Jonah? Now, the book of Jonah is God's word, and God is perfectly clear and honest about all the saints. But there's only one Jonah in the Old Testament that I understand who is so deplorably depicted as Jonah is. A man wouldn't write with that level of honesty. I mean, who does that? God will point out Moses' flaws, along with the fact that he was a servant and a friend of God. And, you know, he'll pick out and show that David sinned the way he did with Bathsheba, but yet he's, Jesus Christ is set on the throne of David, and man, David is a man of great faith. There's nothing inaccurate about all of this as long as you're able to see it through the light and through the fact that God is the one working through these men. The good works are not their own. They're created by God. So the Bible is honest, but is, is Jonah written by, by men? Is it written by a man, Jonah? And is it inspired by God? It is, absolutely. Number two, the Bible is written with such honesty, with one difference. You see the good and the bad in the Bible. The good produced by repentance and faith and the bad that lingers behind. You know, I just mentioned about David the, the, and, and about the Bible, and that it is written with, with honesty, but not with the, the denigration that the book of Jonah is written about Jonah. Third, what story in the Bible exclusively elevates God and completely demeans the main human character, like Jonah? Answer, there's, there's, not, there's only one. There's no other book that denigrates a person who is a person of God. This goes back to lordship salvation. This goes back to the idea that a person who is truly saved will bring forth at least 30% fruit. Jesus said, that there was, you know, there was those, that fruit that grows and that produces 30, 70, and 100% fruit. But there is that, the, the seeds that are sown in three bad soils, and they produce nothing. But then there's the one that's good, some 30, some 60 or 70, and one 100. You know, there's, they don't all produce the same, but they all produce so in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. God always tells the truth 
in a way that he gets the glory and men are seen partly through his eyes and partly through the eyes of men. And when we see men, we see good. We, I mean, which one of us, I mean, and I'm sure there's deplorable people in the world who see only evil in everyone. But when we start out as children, until we get like maybe to some extent really corrupted for some, some not so corrupted, you know, we, we look and we see men, if, if, if it's a believer, you're going to see men uh, in, made in the, in the image of God. And that image bears something good. Fifthly, the man who walks with God like Enoch, for example, who could not be found because God took him, such a man recognizes to an extent far more than the average man that God's glory outweighs human effort that man is not really part of the equation. He's not really, God is doing the good. I mean, any good that is produced in us is produced by God and not ourselves. I believe that Jonah was just such a man. Solomon is glorified for his wisdom, even though his behavior was to love idols. I mean, every kind of idol under the sun. Jonah is ridiculed and criticized for his honesty and praise of God. Chapter 4 the concluding proof. Chapter 4 begins by commenting about Jonah's response to chapter 3 in verse 10. Last verse says, quote, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. Therefore, the opening verse of chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us, quote, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Jonah never declares anything good about himself in the entire account. That's why I, I, I'm thinking it has to be him. No one talks about another person in this way, certainly not a, good, a relatively good person. He's a prophet, and he doesn't do what Balaam did. He doesn't have an end. There's really no end talked about. Jonah never declares anything good about himself. And in chapter 4, we see him out and out contrary to God's will. That's why it's prophet, Jonah, the contrary prophet. Number one, Jonah's contrary response to the salvation of Gentiles. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, Jehovah, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. In his own autobiography, Jonah recounts his prayer to God while still in his own country. This is a prayer between him and God. Quote, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Jonah confesses here that he had been contrary to the will of God. He was completely honest about his rebellion. I'm not sure we can know that he even thought it at this point in time, although he does say, is this not what I said? Was he saying it in his mind? 
Did he know that God knew his thoughts? Certainly, as a prophet, he would know that. All he had to do is read the Psalms. You know, God knows everything. He's El Elyon. He's everywhere present. In his own autobiography, Jonah recounts this thought of rebellion. Furthermore, he gives the reason for running in the opposite direction. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. So if he, they don't hear the message, they can't repent. And if they don't repent, they'll be destroyed. I mean, he's, he's a really good guy, by his own words. Furthermore, then comes his acknowledgement of God's superior character. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. That's pretty good. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Remember, he's not telling us this, except by way of autobiography. He's telling God this, and he's not putting it in a, in a good light. And one who relents concerning calamity, because he doesn't want the Jews to be destroyed. I mean, he loves his people. I mean, every nationality loves their own people to some extent. Every child of God knows that God is gracious and compassionate. He knew this, and he shared it with God. That is the inevitable wisdom and understanding that follows forgiveness. As we live out our lives, we come to understand that God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Every time we see a person saved, we understand that God is one who relents concerning calamity. The only way to read Jonah is to see what's lacking in the prophet, which is considerable, and what is glory for God. By Jonah's honesty, we see his contempt for the Ninevites. As a Hebrew, he was prejudiced and did not care about Israel's disobedience, but at the same time did want forgiveness for a foreign, did not want forgiveness for a foreign people. He wanted forgiveness for, he, for Jews, for Israel, but not for Nineveh. Verse 3 takes Jonah's honesty to still another level. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, O Jehovah, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. What's he saying? What, what's he saying? God's kindness and his sovereign will leaves him no room but to die. I mean, that is, that is awful. I, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to say in this message that Jonah was a good guy. I'm just saying he's, he's an honest guy. Jonah actually preferred death to the will of God, and he comes out and says it. I mean, how many people when we do wrong today I'm willing to get up in front of church and just tell everybody. I've seen it. Um, I've seen it in people who didn't really even repent. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about personal knowledge of how they live their life. I mean, this kind of repentance is the reason for the cross. This kind of sin and obnoxious wickedness is the reason for the cross. To put this type of perspective to death, I mean, only in the resurrection of Christ are men set free to live for him. A person can be saved and not put to death to the extent that they need to be in order to fully glorify God with their lives. Obviously, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any way saying that that is not the case. What I'm saying is honesty among God's people is probably not where it could be, certainly not at this level. 
We, then, we may not speak the words, but is this not the intention of our hearts every time we are displeased with the circumstances of our lives and others? I mean, Jonah's, he'd rather die. I mean, you ever been angry? You ever been cut off? You have ever had somebody in the church, or maybe not in the church, in life, talk bad about you? I mean, make you look bad before others. You feel good about that? You want to curse them or die yourself? I mean, just of shame? I mean, can you relate to this in, in, a, in a small degree or in a large degree? But don't really tell yourself this is what's going on. Let us consider these teachings from Romans 6, 8 through 10. 6, 8 through 10 of Romans. Quote, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If we have died, he's talking to people right now. If we have died, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Christ died once. He carried our sins into the grave, not his own. And he doesn't do that again. He doesn't do that more than once. The price is paid, an eternal price, that only God could accomplish. Death no longer, end quote, end quote, death no longer is, is master over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So he died, he died once for all, and that life that he brought up from the grave when he was raised from the dead, he brings everyone else up who believes in him, who has been given a new heart and faith to believe in him, is also brought up from the grave. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. I'm not making these verses up. These, this, is, this is power for godly living, to overcome sin and death in our lives for the, for the Christian for the regenerate, born-again believer, not for mere professors or religious hypocrites. Jonah, contrary spirit by a lack of response. Jonah gave a contrary spirit. I mean, he, he, he exposes it. Because in verse 4, going back to Jonah 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And you know what? He just walks away. I mean, you talk about disrespectful. I mean, we're talking about God here. I mean, you know, the one that holds the stars up in the heavens that we can't in cross, we can't barely even see them all. I mean, with, with an electronic, with, with a superpower telescope, like we can't see it. And here he's, he turns his back. He, he just doesn't respond. I mean, how many times God, I wonder how many times God questions us by the Holy Spirit through our conscience, and we give no response. I mean, could they even be counted? I mean, I'm talking about myself right now. I mean, how I'm gone, I'm 68 years old. I mean, you go through life and you you seek God, you read God's word, you 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 wonder about God, you meditate on God, and then He brings some conviction to your mind and heart, and you just walk away. I mean, this is like not abnormal. What I see in Jonah here, this this isn't like someone who I would criticize like Balaam and I would say I mean the scripture gives ample reason to believe he was killed by Joshua they didn't they don't went around Joshua didn't go around killing good prophets like Moses you know what I'm saying uh, there was there's a distinction made about him and then in Revelations he's spoken of again in a very poor poor light 
This about Jonah is never spoken of in a bad light in the New Testament. We have no means other than these four chapters to discover who Jonah was. He leaves the city and probably picked a nice spot he could see what was going on and what what God was going to do or not do. And in verse 5 it says, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. He's just prompting himself, propping himself up to see what's going on. In order to see, well, undoubtedly he had to pick a place with no shade uh, because of what follows, which is why he had to make a shelter. Quote, there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. He's not running scared from the people. This isn't a man like full of fear, why he didn't go. This is a man full of prejudice. He's sitting on the bleachers to watch the show. However, he was uncomfortable when, he re- when we read this. Quote, So the Lord God designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. I mean, here's a man waiting to see what God is going to do. And in his heart, he's condemning God for relenting and not punishing these people. While God has been prophesy, had prophets all along prophesying against Israel, and he wants Israel to be saved. And, and he's actually kind of early on among the prophets. So when I say he's been doing this all along, that's partly true. Nevertheless, there is no word of thanks to God for the comfort. I mean, he's in a bad place. God sees him in a bad place. He's not seeing himself in the proper light at this time. Uh, he's, he's just acting and poorly. Quote uh, from 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, he didn't have Christ Jesus. He had a coming Messiah, and he had sacrificial system and the law, and he had all the written words uh, through Moses and the history books and leading up to his life. And he had the Psalms and the Proverbs, and he had all of that information inspired by God, and he gives thanks for nothing. Once again, God shows himself sovereign, and by Jonah's account, verse 7, But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. So God is sovereign. He'll give shade when he wants to give shade and he'll take the shade away when he doesn't want it to have shade. However, in this story, unlike the account given of Job, quote, he said, Naked I came, that's Job, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 121. Job was a godly man, probably above anyone in the scripture, possibly, uh, taking loss like he did, not responding to anything uh, like Jonah. Uh, and Jonah couldn't even give thanks. And actually, nothing bad happened to him except he got a little sweaty. Okay, 
Instead, we read of Jonah, quote, and he begged with all his soul to die. He always wants to die. Saying, death is better to me than life. He's sweaty, okay? He's hot. He's miserable. He's fainting, okay? It's pretty serious in the sense that he's uncomfortable. He's not dying, but he wants to die. At this time, we see Jonah. He has a contempt for losing his personal comfort and immediately becomes contrary to God's sovereignty. You know, the buck stops with God. So whenever we complain, we are doing exactly what Jonah did here. I mean, let's face it. I mean, as Americans, we're pretty pretty contemptible when it comes to how everything has to go right. We do not see Jonah as the man who understood and lived by Romans 8.28. Quote, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So he doesn't see everything working together for good. He's not seeing that he needs to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And the fact that he doesn't have New Testament scripture to fulfill this, he still understood what Moses went through. He understood Noah. He understood Enoch's walk before the flood. There is so much that he got from Abraham. I mean, you can get Romans 8.28 from Genesis. Okay. The, the New Testament is like I've heard it said, 75% of it is quotes from the Old Testament. It's understanding the Old. The, the, the apostles only had the Old Testament. So to say that Jonah couldn't get this yet, that's not accurate. Once again, God questions Jonah about his anger. That he is kindled or burned with anger, actually in the word in the, in the Hebrew. In verse 4 of chapter 4, but the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? I mean, he really specifies it right here about the plant. Jonah never seems shy about sharing his mind with the Almighty, unless, of course, he doesn't want to. Then he just walks away. You know, when it suits him, he'll tell him what he wants. Jonah's always wanting to die. He's fired up about Nineveh and the possible loss of his own people when they come and bring God's hand of judgment down. And so, you know what? He's just angry. And that anger comes out on everything. You know, he's sweating. He's angry. He wants to die. You know, the, the people are relenting. They're, they're pouring out their hearts to God. They want to be saved from this, which lasted 100 years, by the way. And then judgment did fall, you know, after several generations. But this generation was saved. These people were saved. Can't say each and every individual, but the mass of them were brought to repentance and faith. It's like the Welsh revivals. It's like, it's like the, 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 I'm sorry, the, uh, the, this, the founding of our nation and the Great Awakening. And this is what Jonah, you know, I have good reason to be angry. <laughs> Even to the point of death. And he says that to God. Jonah merely says his reason, by the way, you know, to the, for his being to the point of death. He doesn't actually give a reason to be mad. He doesn't say anything about his prejudice. I don't know if he even understands why he's so angry. He understands that he didn't want Israel to die, and he's probably looking at it like, I mean, all I want is the salvation of our pe- my people. Where, where are you at, God? Why aren't you saving Israel? But the buck stops with God, and God wanted to save Nineveh. 
And so Jonah's just like, you've forsaken me in this heat and I want to die. Of course, it was God who gave him the break from the heat in the first place. God is the creator of all things and certainly not Jonah or anyone, one of us. And so if he wants the plant to live, he fine. If he wants it eaten by a worm, it, God is sovereign. And he's pointing this out. He pointed it out to Jonah. And you know what? Since Jonah wrote the story, he got the message. And that's the point to this whole thing. Verse 10, the Lord said, and here comes the big the message from God. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished in a night. You know, people are eternal. He doesn't say that, but they are. Jonah, believe me, Jonah's getting the message, just like Peter did, and the apostles. Verse 11, should I not have had compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who did not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? I mean, God's even compassionate on all the animals. They're going to perish. They're going to be done away with. They're not going to go into eternity. But you know, he's compassionate about everything, and Jonah is compassionate about Israel. God is candid with Jonah about his reasons for compassion and Jonah's lack thereof by proclaiming his reasons of compassion and unconditional love. It was an enormous city, and it was going to be an eternal those people were going to go one place or another. And actually, you know, what happens in this life, if God brought judgment on Israel and they all went to heaven, that would be glorious. It's not about this life. And Jonah can't look past this life at this point in time. But he eventually gets the message. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Jonah hadn't gotten that message at this point in his life. Jonah was unwilling to see the reality of God's grace, because he was blinded by his Hebrew identity. Just like the Pharisees when Jesus came out against them, I read in the beginning. One possibility is that uh, 120,000 were children who didn't know their left from their right. Um, I think it's more likely that the people themselves didn't know their right from their left. But it was, it was certainly more than 120,000 people. It was probably in the millions. The second possibility is just that. that uh, the, the people's were, hearts were so hard, they didn't know their right from their left. And we're on the point of destruction. At the start, I said neither Solomon or Balaam are spoken of in the manner by which Jonah is denigrated. Neither one. Uh, in, in any case, Solomon and Balaam look good by comparison when we read Jonah. I'm here to say that something else is going on. And what's going on, I just alluded to a minute ago, that Jonah got the message and wrote the book. Who else wrote this book? I mean, he's talking from his, his own mind, his own head. He's talking about the plants. If he didn't write the book, he told it in such a perfect way that someone else got it, penned it, 
and they penned this, this message. The message that God is sovereign even in the case of a, of a prophet who goes off the tracks for a time. Again, a person who gets saved is also sanctified. There's no such thing as an unsanctified saint. The New Testament doesn't know anything about that. The church is admonished in the context of if you're real, if you're saved. Paul says to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you be in the faith. What's the test? Well, there has to be change in your life. That's what repentance is. You can't be saved without repentance. People want to make it seem like you can have faith and never change at all. You can live like the devil and still get into heaven. God doesn't work that way. God works the way of repentance. He changes people. He makes them somewhat fit for heaven until a person dies or are caught up to heaven and that moment they are perfected and he finishes what he starts. Was it not what Paul said? You know, what he has begun, he will bring to its rightful conclusion. But if it's not begun, so if we look at Jonah in this light, we would say the man's not saved. Which is why we look at Balaam and we say, I see no evidence. Which is why I look at Solomon and I say, where's the evidence? The fact that he knew the truth? Knowing the truth only makes a person more responsible. It doesn't save them. A transformed spirit saves a person, which is why repentance always precedes faith in the New Testament. Go look at the verses. It's repent and believe. It's not believe and repent. It's repent and believe. Only a repentant heart can believe. Scores of religious people will go to hell from the kneelers and from the pews. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. It doesn't seem that Jesus was siding with the religious of his day. He never did. Concerning John the Baptist, Matthew writes, quote, Then Jerusalem was going out to him. That's John the Baptist. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, can anybody outdo John when it comes to straight talk? I mean, other than Jesus, he's in the category by himself. Verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is John, the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of the gospel, the forerunner of the light of the world, and he says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jonah had to bear fruit. Verse 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Don't think you're anything special. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jonah either produced good fruit or he went to hell. I don't know his heart. I only know the narrative. The narrow way that leads to destruction is filled with so-called righteous and religious. 
Beware that you are not reading into the scripture that good people go to heaven without first being repentant and brought to nothing. Paul, the one-time Pharisee, wrote after his conversion from a self-made righteous man to a person who saw himself as nothing but risen from the dead in Christ. He said this, quote, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him intimately and the power of his resurrection, not just intellectually, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 9 through 11. This is worth reading and understanding that all men who live godly die to self. They recognize who they were and they seek with all their heart to not be that anymore. That's the prophet Jonah. Then there was the tragic fall of Peter who ate with Jesus and hearing that one of the disciples would betray him along with all the rest said to Jesus, surely it's not I. And then minutes later, is arguing who, with the rest, would be the greatest in the kingdom. They all fell asleep when God, in human form, needed a little bit of comfort. But he received none. They woke up and they all ran away. Christ would lift them all to a higher plane, but not before they would be made to understand the futility of walking in the flesh and not the spirit. Prejudice is an awful thing. It really is. I mean, when you go to church, I don't care who the people are, what color their skin is, how much money they have, don't have, all the things that separate us, I hope they mean nothing to you. They need to mean nothing to you. Are you walking in the line of Jonah? So what about Jonah? Let, let me conclude with this. Let me put how Jonah credits God for everything good and himself for nothing. He told the story, I've gone through it, and we see Jonah as worse than worthless. Okay? He's, he's fitted for garbage. Even though he's a prophet of God, he's been raised up. Balaam was raised up. <clears throat> but Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. I'm convinced of it. Because only Jonah could know the things that are in the book. And only Jonah is capable of writing this book in a way that gives God all the glory. I mean, you have to be in this place that Jonah was in to give God all the glory. He, he credits God from his silence about the good that in reality God created, the good in his own life. He's silent to it. He's silent that God is creating something good in Jonah that one day he would turn around and he would write this story. Every person God saves, he also imparts his own goodness. He does. Jonah credited God for grace by running away in chapter 1, in his own life. He does it in chapter 2. Jonah credited God when he pronounced God's character as the reason for running away. 
as he did in chapter 3. Jonah credited God by his self-contempt in his prayer that we read in chapter 2. Jonah credited God for the salvation that is from God. Also in, in his prayer, Jonah credited God by the account of a wayward prophet whom God saved in spite of his waywardness. Jonah credited God for righteousness, holiness, loving, and forgiveness. Jonah credited God for his sovereignty that we could only wish more men would do today. Jonah credited God for his sovereign will to save and to destroy. Jonah was pushed on by God. You know, it's not a big difference between other men, Moses, Jeremiah, other prophets. So, you know, they don't really want to go. I mean, Mo Moses is like making excuses for his tongue. And what does God say? You know, he, he pulls out the stick and he turns it into a snake. He, he looks at his hand and it's leprous. You're going, okay? He says that to prophets time and again. You're going. This, this is my will that you do this thing. And in the process, the men become humble. Jacob, you know, he had the purpose of bringing forth Israel that came from the loins of Jacob. All he was was a thief. And you see it in the story. But in the end of the story, he becomes a humble man. He sees things like the Pharaoh, standing before Pharaoh, could ask for anything. Anything the world could provide at that time. And what's he saying? I don't want anything. They're all the same. They come to nothing. Moses goes from the leader of the greatest nation, about to be presented, you know, to be Pharaoh, and he runs away and, and becomes part of the people of God, and he's out in the wilderness for 40 years with sheep. A detestable animal and profession by the Egyptians. And after 40 years, yeah, you know, I, don't send me. I'm not, I'm not worth anything. And what is Jonah doing here? In chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, he's crediting God for glory, for sovereignty, for love, and for mercy. And he stands condemned in his own eyes. That's, that's what happens to children of God. We end up condemned in our own eyes. And, and not only condemned, but dead in the cross, if we understand Scripture rightly, and risen again in newness of life. Once you get past how bad we are, then you get to the point that's really good, and that's how good Jesus is. And instead of walking in self-righteousness, we kind of walk in a contempt for ourselves, but attaching, grabbing hold as hard as we can by faith to our identity in Christ. You want victory in your Christian walk over this contempt that we should have for ourselves. That we are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. Old things are becoming new. And in that realization we have the identity with Christ in Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And in that identification with Christ we're something new. And we need to see that picture for ourselves. Not of ourselves, or by ourselves, or created in ourselves, but by the Holy Spirit working in our lives so that we bring fruit for God. And that's the message of the New Testament, and that is the good news. And that's actually the story that Jonah tells in these four very precious, very honest, and very humble chapters.
Dear Heavenly Father, we give you the praise for the work that you do in, in your people. We can read the stories of the martyrs in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we can see the blood spilt, and we can see people running in fear at times. But they, they don't give in totally, and they're burned at the stake, or they're hung, or they're thrown off a building, or they're drowned, and, and they're murdered mercilessly by people who, if they didn't repent, would go to hell and pay the price for those murders of good, godly people. Because in the name of, of their own beliefs, they put to death the people and the children of God, the family of God. Lord, I, I pray that we would take home this message from Jonah and know that the work that you do in our hearts is to make us see who we really are, not who we pretend to be or not who we want our, to see ourselves, but who we really are. We thank you for the blood and the sufferings of Christ that, that make it possible for us to exercise faith and to reckon our sins forgiven on the cross, done away with on the cross, and the resurrected life of Christ made possible, makes it possible for us to live in Him by faith. Change us, Lord, now, and we know in that, in that day when we pass from this life, we will be with the souls of righteous men made perfect and will never sin again. For this we give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.